hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? What are you? This is a stupid answer. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Jackson. Woohoo! Because he has a lot of chip spots. <laughs> oh, yeah. Monday, October 20th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18 year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host Annie Goodman is off for the evening. She's a journalist and young adult breast cancer fighter. We are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show features author Mark Waldman. Join us tonight for an exclusive 30-minute interview with said Mark Waldman, author, lecturer, and one of the world's leading experts on communication, spirituality, and the brain, as we discuss relationships between mindfulness, cancer, and said brain. Survivor Spotlight on blogger Lisa Bonchek-Adams. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Super Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag SCRadio. Good evening, everyone. Hello. We are five-sixths of the staff tonight. Five-sixths. That's a solid number. Hello, Hello, Mallory. Hello. How are you? I'm just fantastic. And you were on the couch last week with uh, Sean Shapiro joining us here on mic. Hey, guys. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? You've been here a whole week now. Yeah. Full time. I'm in my second week. Your hair's still, like, not gray. Yeah. (laughs) Soon to be. Yeah. Matt's hair was like yours when he started here. Yeah. I'm actually finding a lot of grays in my beard these days. Well, gray beard. It's like how how much more quickly are we accelerating our age by working here? You look at like the presidents when they start, and then eight years later, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll get you there. Don't worry. I'm only getting one or two every once in a while, but we'll probably be three but or four. You pluck, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's the key. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how's your first week been? It's been amazing. Yeah. Uh, what you, do you learn, and why why haven't you quit yet? You know you know what you're doing is right when it doesn't feel like you're going to work. So that's great. That's my dad's sort of, he stole the quote, but it's like, get a job you love and never work again. Yeah. And that's exactly what it's been. So it's been amazing so far. Maureen, you still feel that way? <laughs> I plead the fifth. Yeah, right. Kenny? Maureen's dying her hair these days. <laughs> Speaking of pleading the fifth. I, I've gone white. Yeah. I um, continue speaking of pleading the fifth. Speaking of pleading the fifth, you are hopefully not going to be on jury duty. Uh, yeah, but tomorrow I will be attending, well, I will be going, to a, court, I'll be, I'll be going to a courthouse, yeah. and I'm still trying to decide what to wear, and really... Wear black. It looks very depressing. I should, I should dress for a funeral? Yeah, like go gaunt. Okay. Yeah, not goth, gaunt. Okay, well, I I don't have goth in my wardrobe, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, okay, yeah, but I'm I'm very much looking forward to fulfilling my civil duty and then being done with it. Fantastic. Yeah. Good stuff. Kenny, you uh, did something pretty cool last week. You put on your I Am Kenny Kane hat. And, I did. Yeah. Oh, I went like back Ken. to my uh, alma mater, the genesis of our relationship to talk about social media and nonprofits, and actually met with a bunch of kids 
and I can say kids because I'm like five years out of that place. Yes. Who are interested in starting their own nonprofits. Ooh. And I tried not to be too uh, realistic with them. I let them keep their ideas. Well, you, you had mentioned that a lot of them wanted to go start charities, and you know we go back to this whole idea. We're in the club. We know how hard it is to run a charity, let alone start a charity. Yep. And, you know, it's okay to let them stay idealistic, but you did give them a little, you threw down the gauntlet a little bit, right? I did. Uh, yes, but not as harsh as you might. No. I'm glad it wasn't me. Yes. It would have all been sobbing. They would have been crying, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was fun. It's good to be an alumni uh, and a perhaps successful one in at least their eyes. So what What are the, uh, to the uninitiated, What? how did you talk about don't start a charity without actually making them cry? Well, it wasn't really the, the focus of it. It was kind of like a, a leave behind. But uh, a lot of them were curious to know about how we started and how we evolved. And it's the Cinderella story of two guys in this room with glass slippers. Yes. Um, and how Facebook was really uh, a big thing for us and social media in general. So that was my... Well, good for you. Yes, that was it. And then, we, I, then I went home. <laughs> Very nice. And we, we want to promote, there's a conference coming up, Mal. Do we have that? There's a conference coming up in Manhattan Beach. Yes, Lymphoma Research Foundation. Yes, their annual educational forum on lymphoma. How do I get there? You go to Manhattan Beach. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> well, there you go. There's planes. Um, we posted the information in the Southern California group on Facebook, so if you are not a member of that, you can join Facebook and find the group. Yes, it's the Stupid Cancer SoCal Facebook group, and you can also go to their website, which is pretty easy to remember as long as I pull it up in <laughs> a reasonable amount of time, which do, I will not. Do, do, do. <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah, no, I didn't do it. But it's okay. somewhere at lymphoma.org. Yeah, just go to lymphoma.org. I'm sure it's on the website there. there. And look up their Ed yeah. Forum. Good stuff. Yeah, it's going to be great. And I guess the big news is that uh, CancerCon, our international conference next April in Denver, is launching exhibitor registration tomorrow at noon mm-hmm. Eastern time. Woo! We have oh my 50 gosh. slots. 40 we slots. have some. Yeah, up to, I think 50, right? I don't want to oversell. We're still trying to yeah. play Tetris with the tables. Right, exactly. So we, somewhere between 40 and 50-ish. 50-ish. And I guarantee those who are listening that are affiliated with a nonprofit organization or a corporation, for that matter, this is the event you want visibility at, uh, cancercon.org. We make it very uh, cost-effective for charity to be there. It is three and a half days. Mm-hmm. with full engagement, and I just want to talk about, Kenny and I um, were on the receiving end of this hardness. Uh, we've been exhibitors at conferences mm-hmm. hundreds of times, and the worst happens when you're sitting at the table waiting for someone to show up. Yep. You just sit there all day waiting and waiting and waiting. We made sure. I got a lot of reading done last time I did that. I know. Mm-hmm. Those are terrible experiences for exhibitors, mm-hmm. and thankfully the evolution of this event over the last now four years is, uh, with exhibitors that is, it has made it so exhibitors are participatory in yes. the conference. You get to go to all the plenaries, all the workshops, all the lunches. You get to mingle and hubbub around with all the attendees. And then there is specific dedicated face time with exhibitors. Mm-hmm. It's a really important thing to mention. Um, so, again, if you're listening to this broadcast and you are associated with or affiliated with a nonprofit or a business and you would like to exhibit at CancerCon, visit cancercon.org. You can download our exhibitor registration pack on the site, and exhibitor registration launches tomorrow at noon. Yay. Exciting. Uh, anything else out there? Oh, surely. What are you all going for Hall- uh, Halloween as? I am going first as a zombie and then as one-third of the three amigos. Which one? Chevy Chase, Martin Short, or... Uh... We haven't assigned yet, okay. but I did learn the handshake, which <laughs> I can do on the radio. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, she did the handshake, the little uh, hip thrust arm. Yeah, Macarena I was thing. sitting down though. It wasn't as dramatic as as people will see on right. November first. Will be the day that I wear that costume. Kenny, are you going as a giant can of beer or something? Um, I don't know. I'm kind of a non-participatory in Halloween these days. Oh yeah, I don't know. It's just a uh, a thing that I don't do. But maybe. Well, we've got kids coming. My, actually, my, my son and daughter have a Halloween party. I actually have a question school. for you. How do you find out about when trick-or-treat is? I would love to give candy to the neighborhood children and look at their adorable it's costumes. typically when school gets out, from like 2 to 5. 
Okay. Yeah. I'm going to take a half day of that day. <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be out today that day because my kids have a Halloween party at school. Cool. From like 10 to 12. What are they going as? Uh, Hannah's going as a robot. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. Are you making it out of boxes? Yeah, it's boxes and tinfoil, basically. Okay. With anti- aluminum antenna hats. Oh. And they'll be going as what else? Thomas the Train. All right. Because that's how he rides. He's consistent. Yeah, very consistent. In any case, with that said, why don't we uh, get the show started here tonight? I'm really excited. Tonight's a great show. Put on your thinking hats. Not that you don't have to do that every show, but tonight's a very special broadcast. Joining us in the Survivor Spotlight tonight, Lisa Bonchuk Adams is a writer who focuses on the topics of living and parenting with terminal cancer on her website, lisabadams.com. She also tweets at, at Adam Lisa's, Adams Lisa, sorry, uh, about the day-to-day aspects of life with the disease. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bonchuk Adams. Lisa. Hi. Hi there. I feel that this is a long overdue uh, segment to have you on the broadcast, so thanks for being patient with us. Well, I'm happy to be here to to share with your listeners and to share with you and chat with you, so thanks for having me on. And that actually, that sentiment means a lot more when you are living with terminal cancer, that you're happy to be here to share with us. I'd love you to, uh, I mean, you, you truly do embody what this sort of new normal is in terms of what does cancer mean these days. And uh, I was hoping you would just kick it off by telling us your story. Uh, you were diagnosed um, in uh, 2007, and we, we always like to have our guests talk about life before they were diagnosed. So I assume you were just a regular, normal person living your life in 2006, correct? I was. Um, I had just, when I was diagnosed, kind of right leading up to my diagnosis the first time, which was um, a stage two diagnosis, um, I had just had my third child. Um, He was born with some medical issues. He had had open heart surgery. Um, My diagnosis came by going to my six-month postpartum visit at my gynecologist. Um, But, you know, prior to that, I really was kind of living everybody's normal life. Uh, I had gotten married. We lived in New York City for a while, and then we decided to move to the suburbs. Um, and we were just kind of, in in many ways, taking life for granted the way that you do when you're healthy and you're young and you have young children and your life is very consumed with the day-to-day living of taking care of young children, which I was. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden you you know you you hit a roadblock and nobody ever expects that this is going to happen and um, certainly when I was diagnosed the first time I like most people thought well I'll get through this and then I'm going to be done with it and I'll go on with my life um, and unfortunately that's you know that's not really what happened over over the course of time. So DCIS, an invasive ductal carcinoma. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So DCIS um, is what is known as, some people call it stage zero cancer. Now they're kind of debating about what to call it. But DCIS is kind of a a precancerous condition where the cells are are, um, atypical and they are sometimes associated with invasive ductal carcinoma, but they can just be DCIS, you know, precancer that you just take out and you don't need to do any further treatment. Um, when I was first diagnosed, they thought that I just had DCIS, um, but it was extensive throughout one breast. And so they did say that I needed to have a mastectomy on that side, even though it was considered stage zero cancer. However, when they did the pathology on all of that breast tissue, they did find that there was very, very, very tiny, too small to be seen on mammogram, too small to be in the biopsy, too small to be seen anywhere. It actually took two pathologists to find it. There was invasive ductal carcinoma um, in in the breast as well after I had had it removed. Does that infer that a lot of women who are diagnosed with this, quote, stage zero breast cancer have no treatment? Um, There are some women and men, I should say, because men get breast cancer too, um, for whom, although usually with men it is not diagnosed until a later stage because um, they might not be as aware of it or their doctors might not be um, as willing to kind of follow up on it as, as aggressively. Um, so more frequently men are diagnosed with later stage breast cancer. Um, but with DCIS, there are many cases where it can be surgically removed and 
and patients do not need any further treatment. Uh, it, it, it depends on the individual and, and what the rec recommendations are, and it depends where it is in the breast, how extensive it is. So it, it is very much a case-by-case -case basis. So you actually took the other spectrum. You went as high risk as possible with any potential, had a double mastectomy, full-on chemotherapy, and then, you know, one might assume we, we, we like to, you know, kind of joke here. I mean, I'm hitting 19 years, thankfully, next month. But that when the doctor says you're cured, go home, that's not the end of the story. And you were in remission for five years, correct? Right, which is actually very common um, with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Um, up to 30% of men and women who are diagnosed with early stage breast cancer will have later metastases just like I did. And so... First of all, you know, I, I never believed the you're cured. I mean, they really, that is not used as much with breast cancer anymore because it's just not as accurate with many types of breast cancer. There are many types where it does recur frequently 5, 10, 15, 20 years after the initial diagnosis. Uh, those cells can be dormant for decades in some cases um, before they will come back um, in, you know, as metastases, meaning that they, those breast cancer cells have been dormant. They have traveled to other parts of the body. That's what metastases means, is it has moved to another part of the body. M most of your listeners probably know that, but just to clarify. And then they start growing again. And it's once they start growing in vital organs, then they become life-threatening, and that's when you, um, you know, are, are considered to have uh, metastatic disease. Right. So when when you went through this, I mean, I know they made a lot of progress by 07. Was this information disclosed to you upon finishing your treatments that this might happen down the road? Uh, it certainly was not talked about the way that it is um, today. And, you know, that's really one of the things that I try to educate on is that we do like to talk about how far we've come and how far science has come and research has come and look at all of the donations and where is this going and, and look at all of the, the drugs. But in reality, we haven't come as far as, as we would like to. And I think what we're learning now is how much we have yet to learn and how complex a disease this is. We used to think that breast cancer was one thing. In other words, 20 years ago, if you got breast cancer and your friend got breast cancer, you figured that, those two, that, that you two had the same thing. And what we know now is that's not true. You could have triple negative disease. You could have HER2 positive disease. You could have hormone receptor positive disease. These get treated differently. They have different outcomes. They have different um, prognoses. And, um, you know, when I was first treated, they looked at things like, what is your risk of recurrence? Should you do chemotherapy? Um, they had, um, you know, a recurrence score about what was the chance that it might come back. But I was really told that I had a single-digit chance of recurrence, and I was told to go live my life. And, um, you know, unfortunately, single digits, there are people in those single digits, and I was one. You know, I recently had a conversation with somebody, and I had read something online. I love this quote. I, this one of those, it's always great when you're like, you didn't think of it. Someone else has a great idea. That cure is not the opposite of cancer. And you said something really amazing before, how cancer used to be thought is or just about a body part, that you got cancer and you had a red, you know, Toyota Camry four-wheel drive, and everyone had that Camry. And now it's like you just drive a vehicle any vehicle, any shape, size, color, make, model, and that's cancer. So there's 200 types of cancer and all these subtypes, and you mentioned triple negative, and, uh, and then there's BRCA and all these genetic risks. So let's, let's fast forward then. So it's 2014. You are living with metastatic stage 4 disease, which is incurable, but it is something that people have demonstrated that you can actually live with and it's always very difficult to explain that to the layperson. Have, what, what's been your experience in explaining this to, because you blog extensively, want to get to your blog a lot. You know, what's the message that living with cancer is not about your quantity, it's about your quality, correct? Well, I, you know, I guess yes and no. 
Uh, first of all, the whole issue, you know, when you first get diagnosed with stage 4 disease, the first thing that everybody wants to tell you is, I know somebody that's been living with that for 20 years, and they just take a pill every day, and they've been fine on this one treatment. And the truth of the matter is that there are people like that, but they are rare, and they are usually diagnosed when they are older, and they usually have uh, specific types of disease. And so if you're diagnosed in your 30s or your 40s, your chance of having a disease that is slow-growing and allows you to have you know, a, a quote-unquote normal quality of life for decades is, is quite low. It, it, it is more likely if you are diagnosed at a young age that you will have an aggressive um, type of cancer and that your treatments, the problem with treatments for metastatic disease is that the cancer becomes resistant to them. The cancer mutates. And so you are constantly having to, you are always in treatment. Um, you know, some people do achieve an NED, a no evidence of disease status for periods of time, but it doesn't happen for usually for long periods of time. Um, and so what that means is you are living life, but that quality is diminished. And that quality is diminished because the only things that you can do are to be in constant treatment, to be scanning to see where your metastases are shifting and changing, and to be focusing on retreating them. And those treatments do become um, ineffective if they work at all. Some of them have you know, the, the chance that they will work at all to begin with is often 30% or less. Um, and so you have to find one that works and then deal with those side effects. And so quality of life is, is changed in varying degrees during the course of your treatment. It, it, is, it, is, it can be kind of a normal life for, for some years, but um, for some people it is not. If they're diagnosed immediately with stage 4 or if they have very aggressive disease, um, their quality of life is, is not normal. So I think, that, I think that seeing those ebbs and flows is really something that I try to show in the day-to-day -day between the tweets and the blogs is what is, what is it like to live in that cycle? Right. Um, and, and mean, to, it, do you really hate it when people say, well, you're going to die one day? I hate when people say that. I despise that because what, what <laughs> they, sometimes they'll say things like, well, I could go out and get hit by a bus tomorrow. And, and my response to that has come to be, but you are going to, I mean, assuming that the person is healthy and they're saying I could go get hit by a bus, their life is not completely taken over by the fact that they might get hit by that bus. I think that having stage four disease is much more like walking on train tracks with the train three inches behind you. You know what is likely to kill you. It has a 98% chance of being fatal. Um, and you are living your life not knowing when that's going to happen or what your quality of life is going to be, and you are constantly focused on this because you are always in treatment. You are always trying to um, you know, deal with side effects and also plan for the fact that you don't know. You, your, your life could kind of, your case could go downhill quickly, or you could have some stability for quite some time, and you don't know that. So, so I, you, you, I I don't find the the you know the I you could get hit by a bus we all we all are going to die someday. I mean the naivete that goes the the wonderful naivete of being young is you don't think that's going to happen. Right. So you blog at lisabadams.com. It's a very very honest, compelling and truthful uh content site. Uh what inspired you to start blogging? I mean clearly it's the 21st century and everyone blogs but it's often very sensitive to engage online with these open stories, especially given the gravity of what you're going through and the public impact that it could have on people. It is difficult, and especially in, in this world of, of you know, trolls and people being mean and, and kind of comments that you can get. Um, it, it is very difficult. I, I take tone very seriously in my writing, and um, I started because, I've always been a person that was kind of science-minded. I always was interested and understood the science of cancer, and my background is in psychology and sociology. And so uh, after I received treatment initially, when other people were getting diagnosed or their friends were, they would write to me and say, what can I do for them or how can I help them? What's your advice? Or 
will you read this pathology report and tell me what it means? And so I started writing. At that time, Facebook was kind of just coming into being, and I would write posts on Facebook um, so that other people could see them. What's my advice on how you help a friend or what to say to a friend or what not to say to a friend? And um, then people started saying, well, I'm not on Facebook or my mom's not on Facebook and I think she'd like this. How can I have access to it? And that's really where the blog and the website came from was a place so that other people could access the information. Right, and just for our listeners out there, again, LisaBAdams.com, some of the posts are just heart-wrenching. So much left to do, the hardest conversation to my dearest children when I die. Uh, These are incredibly emotional posts to the average reader. Um, So what's been the response then? I mean, clearly you're impacting many, many people on social media. Um, have Have you been reached out to by other women living with stage 4 disease? It's really interesting to see. I, I get uh, dozens and dozens. Um, you know, I, I probably get you know a hundred emails a week um, from people, and it is very interesting. I thought at first that it would just be people with cancer, even if it wasn't breast cancer. I thought it would be people who who have cancer who would be kind of touched by this in a particular way and and reach out. But it, what I've really found, I mean, there are so many men who read, which has been fascinating to me. Um, men who don't even, it's not even necessarily that their wife has died of breast cancer or someone they know or that they have it themselves, but the, the, the ones that really um, speak to me the most and really fuel me the most are adults who, as children, had a parent die of cancer. And so they are writing to me as an adult and saying, my mother died when I was four years old, five years old, ten years old. And I always wondered what she was thinking. I always wondered, did she know? I always wondered, how did she manage taking care of us and going through surgery or treatment? And those are really the, the letters that just speak to me because that what, what the writers say is, you're giving me a window into what she or he might have felt and what they might have been thinking. And because they were, quote-unquote, robbed of having one of their parents or both of their parents from a young age, um, I think that there is this sense that they have bonded with me because they they feel that they're almost becoming closer to their dead parent by reading what someone else is going through. I, I feel like I have to ask you um, about your thoughts on Brittany Maynard, who is the young woman in Oregon with terminal brain cancer, who is choosing uh, self-euthanization, which is legal in that state, uh, to avoid having to go through the challenges of living with a debilitating chronic disease that is having almost surefire uh, death and within just a few months. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm absol- I believe that people should have the right to take their own life if, if they are, you know, of sound mind, they understand the consequences, they have, you know, researched what their options are, and if they choose not to go through treatment or they choose, you know, not to go through, um, they want to not experience that dying process because, Let's face it, in this country, palliative care um, and pain management at the end of life and also during treatment is not accessible to everyone. Um, not everyone has access to, you know, great medical care and to responsive medical teams, and they might be suffering more than what someone else might be suffering. Um, I, I fully, I think unless you have walked so close to death, um, you know, with, with a disease like this um, and experienced what that is like, I think it's very easy to judge other people's decisions, but I personally support her decision. No, and, and I appreciate your sharing that with us. It's obviously a very, very, very emotional topic, and it's gotten the entire country engaged uh, across all media platforms. Uh, we have about a minute left, but I really did want to focus uh, specifically on you know, we're a young adult cancer organization. You were diagnosed under 40. We typically, you know, you're an alumni of the young adult group, and so am I, but it still matters that you had young children. 
and you're still dealing with young children going through this. Tell us why it's different um, and young adult cancer as a mother, parenting. This is an issue that is unique to our age group. It's something that other populations may not understand as relevant. And you're navigating through this. How, how do you stay organized and how is it different for you with your children? Well, first of all, I feel I feel very fortunate that I had my children before I was diagnosed. I know that for many people, um, cancer and or treatments take their fertility away and they um, they don't have options or they have fewer options or they might not they have to you know have children through um, other methods they might not be able to have biological children and and that is something that I think patients need to speak up about is preserving fertility if that's something that is important to them so first I want to acknowledge that I was very lucky to have had my children when I was diagnosed but it, it really it centers everything because so much of what I do now is not just focusing on my treatment and on trying to have the best quality of life, um, doing as much as I can for as long as I can, but also really preparing, not only preparing my children psychologically, but also just preparing kind of organizationally for the fact that I'm not going to be here when I, for as long as I thought I was. And there is so much that goes along with that, and there are so many difficult conversations that need to be had with children. How you talk about life and death and sickness and what is happening and just getting things ready for them, doing, you know, memory boxes for them so that, um, you know, that was important to me, so that their photos and their first baby outfits would all be in one place because I won't be here when they have their own children. And there are things that you need to confront head-on about your own mortality that can be very difficult when you have young children. I mean, there's a ton I could say about it, but I will keep it short because uh, I know that we're out of time. But there, there is so much to be said about how you have these conversations and not be in denial. And it forces, it should force a parent to really be putting their children first um, and and having those conversations and doing as much as they can while they're here. Well, I think you've earned yourself another show <laughs> at some point. Uh, it's clear we, we try to um, be equal opportunity with the broadcast, but we haven't done a show on terminal disease uh, or metastatic disease in quite a while. So Lisa Bonchek-Adams, thank you so much for joining us. We'll definitely have you back. She uh, is a stage four uh, breast cancer survivor blogging at Lisa B. Adams. Dot com and tweeting at Adams Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Not even an introduction to the news? No, you just have to assume they're going to do it now. Just going right into it? Yeah. Head on over to events.supercancer.org. That is events. Supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some meetups happening in Kansas City, Missouri, Roseville, Minnesota, Houston, Texas, Westminster, Colorado, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We have our Stupid Cancer Boot Camp happening in Montana, uh, and finally, New York, New York. And if you'd like to host your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Cancer is lonely, and we've got the cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by any cancer, including caregivers. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join our beta testing community. Immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible donation of $500. That's instapeer.org. All right, we've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce CancerMadeMeBroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and warm in a stupid cancer hoodie. We've got an awesome skateboard and don't forget about Flip, the cancer bird, our latest plushy mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Proud. 
Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid, stupid cancer, cancer News. All right. And now for the prime time, Mark Waldman has authored 13, count them, 13 books, including the bestseller, How God Changes Your Brain, an Oprah pick. In 2012, he teaches at Loyola Marion University and is the world's leading expert on spirituality and the brain. This is going to be a great show. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Mark Walden. Mark. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. No, it's very exciting. And, and just to give our, our listeners a, uh, a heads up, you and I had a very, uh, I would say, a mindful, spiritual uh, conversation a couple of weeks ago, getting acquainted, and I'm quite fascinated with your work. I, too, am fascinated with my work, but if I say that, I sound narcissistic. If I do that narcissistic thing, then I have to go and do some of the mindfulness practices to get rid of my narcissism, decrease my chances of getting cancer, and to help myself boost and heal my immune system, (laughs) which gives you a little bit of a sense of what my research has been about. No, we're going to dive right into that, but I had a a random question for you. Um, Yes. When you author your 12th book, is your shouldn't your next book be fourteen? Don't we skip thirteen like in elevators? Well, it turns out that if you live in China, uh, the number seven turns out to be unlucky, and the number thirteen turns out to be lucky. So, for all my Chinese fans out there, I'll simply let you know that I am working on my fourteenth book and finishing it up as we speak. Very nice. Now, how did you first get started? What drew you? Uh, where did you do undergraduate and your studying, and, and how did that passion start for this specific scientific area? Uh, the specific scientific area of which part? Spirituality, consciousness, yes. cancer? Yes. Yes. I mean, everything you, you do today came from where did that stem from? I had a mystical experience when I was uh, 38 years old, which is about 48, 58 about 25 years ago. And in that experience, I was just sitting in my office and I looked outside the window and I utterly felt connected, literally at one with, the tree, the lawn, the weeds, the fence, the telephone poles, all of that's still emblazoned in my mind. And in that moment, I went, oh, that's what all those Buddhists and Hindus are talking about when they talk about unity consciousness. And for the first time in my 38 years, I genuinely felt connected and at peace with myself. And then the experience went away. (laughs) And then a few months after that, I had another remarkable enlightenment experience. My mentor and teacher and supervisor, Bruno Bettelheim, had just died at the age of 83. And I'm sitting there again in my office, and suddenly the thought that comes through me is, I don't know anything about spirituality or psychoanalysis, which is what I was supposedly trained in for the last 10 years. And I went, oh, wow, oh, fill in the blank. And that set me on an obsessive-compulsive quest to read everything I possibly could in the literature about the psychology of human health and well-being. But it didn't make me very happy because I found out that there were 256 schools of psychology and 27 different totally unique theoretical perspectives. I, the client, the patient, how in the world can I find out who is the best person who's going to match my particular needs? And this drove me to an interesting conclusion, which I later found tremendous support for in the field of neuroscience. Trust my intuition. What feels best? And because I was a therapist at the time, I realized that every client that comes to me, every patient that goes to a doctor, goes to that doctor or that therapist because they have felt a loss of control. They have felt that they don't have the answer. They feel helpless and they are turning to somebody else for advice. And what I have learned, and it's been reconfirmed through study after study and the way the human brain works, is that nobody can actually give us the best possible advice for ourselves, but that there's a little tiny part inside of the human brain called the anterior cingulate and the insula 
And this is a part of the brain that can gather all of the outer knowledge and wisdom that we have gained throughout our lives and combine it with all the inner knowledge and wisdom that is genetically programmed into our being. And if we trust our intuition, we can listen to somebody else's advice. And if our intuition says, no, that's not right for me, if you follow that, you actually boost your immune system. If you follow and trust your own intuition, you boost the immune system, and it does an amazing thing. It lowers the stress levels on both the body level and the neurological level. And as we well know, stress is the number one killer in America today. That's how okay. I got into hey. this. No, yeah, and, and, and thank you for articulating that. It, it's pretty impressive. I guess um, clearly there's a lot of what one might say like differences of opinion because we're ingrained in a certain way of bringing up on our culture and the Western civilization isn't typically built upon a, a I would say, a, a stable structure of this mindfulness, and we live in a highly frenetic society. Um, what is mindfulness in, in the traditional sense, then? I, I think we should get a baseline here for our listeners, because we, yeah. everyone here and you know, mental well-being and you know, uh, meditation. Can you just give us, like, the Wikipedia of, of all this yeah, and it all started back in the 1970s when a lot of us back in our college days did too much psychedelics and LSD, thought we had discovered the truth about something, and then woke up three days later with a headache and realized that uh, these forms of enlightenment were only temporary. And a bunch of those individuals decided to go off to the East and study with different gurus and Zen practitioners and Tibetan monks some of them came back to the United States, got their MDs like Herb Benson at Harvard University, and he created what was called the relaxation response, which was simply finding a specific word or a sound that brings you great satisfaction. And if you repeat it over and over and over again, your stress levels go down. And one of the latest studies that came out from Harvard shows that if you pick a word like peace or love or even just saying om or ah, any sound or word that has deep meaning or value to you, and you repeat that over and over and over again for 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, after eight weeks, you've turned on 1,200 stress-reducing genes. So all of these Eastern meditation philosophies began to be secularized, and you had the relaxation response. At the same time, up at Boston University, John Kabat-Zinn was taking some of the Buddhist meditation practices where you simply sit there and you watch how thoughts flow in and out of your mind, and he decided to give it a new name. He called it mindfulness, and he developed a simple strategy that involves stretching and just paying attention to your breathing and watching your thoughts, and he called it mindfulness-based stress reduction. This is now one of the most researched strategies and technologies for improving literally every form of neurological, physiological, and psychological health. And mindfulness can be defined in the following terms. All you have to do is sit there and first relax yourself as deeply as possible. And the fastest way to relax yourself from the research that Andy Newberg and I have done is yawning. <sighs> yawning like that actually slows down the metabolism in the parts of your brain that tend to worry. Stretching in super slow motion in any way, like taking a full 60 seconds to roll your head around in a circle. Most people stretch too fast. But when you do it in super, 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 super slow motion, you become aware of each and every muscle that you are doing. Then, if you want to begin to very slowly take your fingertips and slowly stroke your hands and arms, this releases dopamine in a part of your brain that turns off the negative emotional centers that are going on. I was at a con cancer conference and I found out that so many cancer patients 
or parents and family members of cancer patients have a difficult time sleeping. They're woken up in the middle of the night by worries and fears. And so I said, I don't know, we don't have any firm research on it, but there was about 200 people in the audience. I'd like you to go home tonight, go back to your hotel room, and just spend 20 minutes giving yourself a self-massage in the privacy of your own space. Hug, squeeze, rub your head, do everything that feels really good, and let me know what happens. And we got back a slew of emails the next day from people saying, it's the first time I've had a beautiful night's sleep in 10 years. So these are basic relaxation exercises, just yawning, paying attention to your natural breathing, slowly stretching, doing something extraordinarily pleasurable. Then, as you deeply relax, all you do is sit there and you watch your thoughts and feelings pop into consciousness, and they're endless. So you might be sitting there going, okay, I wonder what's going to happen next. You notice that, you let that thought flow away. Oh, I feel very relaxed. You notice that thought, you let it fall away. Um, hmm, I should be doing some other things right now. I have all this work doing. Oops, I, my mind has wandered. You notice that, you come back to your breathing, and you go, oh my God, this feels really good. And then another thought comes in saying, this is a waste of time. But in a very short period of time, you begin to realize that you are not your thoughts. You are watching these thoughts go through your head. And many people will have a profound aha experience at that point. If you are not your thoughts, then your thoughts are not real. And so... One of the things, what Andy Newberg and I do, we're the people who have been doing brain scan studies for a decade or two of Buddhists doing meditating on pure consciousness, of Franciscan nuns doing centering prayer, focusing on sacred texts from the Bible. We've just finished studies with Sufis doing La Ilaha Illallah and Muslims doing the formal Salat daily prayers. We've done affirmation exercises. We've looked at all of these meditations, and they're all profoundly good because it takes you out from your worrisome brain. And we now know that your right prefrontal cortex, right there above your right eyeball, is an area of the brain that constantly generates worries, fears, and doubts. They aren't real. They're just memories from the past being projected onto the present or onto the future. So you can actually train yourself to notice all of these negative thoughts, and you can even simply say to yourself, this is part of our neuro-wisdom program, you repeat, this thought is not real. It's just a memory from the past that I'm projecting on the future. You come back to your breathing, and then you can arbitrarily impose a positive thought. Oh, it felt really good when I stretched. Oh, the flower outside of my window is gorgeous. In this very moment, every hour, there are hundreds of incredibly pleasurable, enjoyable experiences that we have. But the worrisome mind ignores all of that. When we train ourselves to be positive, you can actually push your positivity ratio up to 3 to 1 or 5 to 1. What turns out is that you actually can see in a brain scan that the activity in your negative frontal lobe begins to go down, and the optimistic side of your brain, your left prefrontal cortex, becomes more and more active. This, in turn, shuts down the negative emotional centers that are in the deepest parts of your brain. So we have learned over the years that it takes less than 60 seconds to change your brain in a way that eliminates stress, worry, anxiety, boosts your immune system, um, turns on stress, uh, you know, uh, immune, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, genes that, ex- uh, it turns on genes that turn, that, that turn off the stress production mechanisms in your brain. And well, that's I'm really amazing. I, I wanted to just, I want to get a little pragmatic now. In a sense, sure. Um, we live in New York. It's the most stressful environment in the world, and it's very hard to get away. So, what are some pragmatic 
things that the average person working 18 hours a day in a law firm or an ad agency or just trying to get by in life who's maybe a single mom and not making a good living, and like you live in a predisposed, stressful situation. How do you mindful yourself out of that when the pragmatism of the causes of that stress will not go away? Well, understand that most of our stress is being caused by a worrisome thought. It's not really happening at the time. So, for example, you live in New York, but what would you say is the most uh, stressful occupation in Manhattan? Nonprofit employee. <laughs> Nonprofit employees. Uh, I would uh, I would say I would say Wall Street. I would say corporate executives who are just obsessed with making as much money as possible. Doesn't matter how many people they have to step on to get to that. And where do I teach? I teach busy executives who have to who are running multi million dollar companies. <clears throat> they tend to work an average of ten to fourteen hours a day, and they have to go back to school to get their MBA. And I am. And they have made me the first uh, teacher they meet. And when they meet me, I hold up a large brass Tibetan bowl, and I do this. I ring it, and I stand there in silence. Now, people are paying $40,000 for this class, so... I'm not saying anything, and so that immediately their minds begin to chatter and chatter and chatter. But then I say, I want you to listen to that bell as deeply as you possibly can. And as the sound of the bell fades away, you start to become aware of all the other sounds in the room. You may become aware of your own breathing. In that moment, everyone will notice that they're not having a single worry, fear, or doubt. And then we teach them to yawn, to slowly stretch, to stroke their hands and arms. And then we ask them what has turned out to be probably the most powerful question in the world. I think we've introduced it now to about a half a million people. We ask a person while they're deeply relaxed and they're very focused, what is your deepest innermost value? What is your deepest, innermost value? And then I ask them to just trust their intuition. And so, for example, for you, what's the first word that comes to mind? Raspberry. Okay. Take another deep breath in. Relax. What is your deepest, innermost value? And what's the next word that comes to your mind? Automobile. Take another really deep breath. What would be your deepest, innermost personal value, a value that gives your life meaning and purpose? Parenthood. What was the word? Parenthood. Parenthood. Okay. Now, notice that the first two words that you came up with, I don't necessarily know if raspberry is is a value unless chewing on a raspberry brings you great joy. But if you take the word if you take your if you take your list of values, they could be values like peace or integrity or honesty or love. One person's word was grandfather. Somebody else might use the word confidence. And you focus on that particular word. That's the one that immediately reduces stress. So we tell our busy executives we do. We have them do two things. We have them go online, and you just type in on a search engine "mindfulness clock," or you can find it on my website. Uh, a, de, a very simple device, and it has two bells on it: a deep one and a and a and a um, and a lighter sounding one. And I suggest that everyone put this on their work computer and set it so that it rings three times during the hour. So the first time it rings, we just ask our students and our executives and our patients in hospitals to simply take 10 seconds to yawn, stretch, and relax, just a 10-second relaxation break. That's all it takes to get rid of 20 minutes of stress, and then when you throw yourself back into work, you're more productive. Then at the top of each hour, 
we at when the when the other bell rings, we ask a person to stop just for 60 seconds and to do any activity that brings them pleasure. Just take a break. Wash your hands and face in slow motion. Run in place. Jog around the block. Do a meditation. Anything. And then we ask a person to wake up each morning and just ask themselves the same question. What's my deepest innermost value? Set their mindfulness clock so that they think about that once every hour throughout the day. 90% of our students over the past six years keep saying, you know what? At first, I thought this was the most ridiculous exercise in the world. Or as, as one person said, what kind of BS is this for an accounting class? And I don't think they were referring to brain science. And yet, usually by the fourth or fifth day, everyone says, oh, wow, I'm working with less stress. I'm working more product, more." more i'm 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 generating more work i'm feeling happier about myself oh my god this should be taught to every mba student in the world so my question to you is how do i get every new yorker to how how do, how do i get a large bell to ring over the loudspeakers throughout new york city so that everybody takes just 10 seconds to stop once an hour just to become aware of themselves, to slow down just for a few seconds. That's mindfulness. And when we ask a person to only do it for 10 seconds and they find it pleasurable, as 90% of the people will, they'll do it for a minute or two minutes or five minutes or 15 minutes. And we've gotten them involved in the neurological process that is the healthiest thing that you can do for your brain. Mark, let me. Uh, we have about ten minutes left in the interview. I, I want to touch on again some pragmatic factors here. You know, we, are, we are obviously a cancer organization. We deal with disease yes. and quality of life nonstop every day. And you yourself are a caregiver uh, to your wife who had cancer twice in her eye and her breast. We had a breast cancer survivor uh, living with metastatic disease, something about stress. Yes. So, uh, yes. While she's forty-five, parenting three young children. Uh, how, how does the? Uh, I mean. I just I'd like some clarity on the statement here that that the number one cause for disease is stress and worry. What are your thoughts on environmental toxins and things in our food, air, and water that we have no control over? How how does mindfulness factor the things you don't have control over? Or the part of the second part of that question is, does mindfulness mitigate the cellular damage these things cause in your body? What mindfulness, what mindfulness does. It doesn't, it doesn't directly mitigate the cellular damage in your body, but what it does do is that it stimulates the immune system in a very positive way, and then the, mu and then the immune system will mitigate the damages in the body. Again, what is stress? There's two kinds of stress. Physiological stress, like right now, everybody's probably holding their heads, their arms, their hands tighter than they want to. I always like to, when I stand in front of a a large audience. I say, everybody, I want you to make yourself very relaxed in your chair, and you hear all the scuffling going around, and I say, well, why did you sit down unrelaxed? So most of the time, we're kind of disconnected from our bodies. We're not even aware of how much tension we're walking around with, but the slightest reminder, we can relax our shoulders a little bit. We can drop our jaw. We can just, again, a yawn is a great relaxation technique because it stretches all the muscle, all the muscles, you know, that in your neck and whatever else, and if you're feeling irritated about something, yawning again is the fastest way to not only eliminate physiological stress, but neurological stress as well. The more a person worries about the disease they have, the more they are compromising their immune system and the regulatory systems in their brain. So there are tons and tons of environmental insults that we are surrounded with. My personal opinion is that this human brain has created more problems and is very good at solving a lot of them. But you can't sit down in your car without breathing fumes and plastics. And, you know, we've all been taught to eat fast food standing up and running. If I was to teach another technique, what is the most effective technique for improving one's entire life, I would say take 60 seconds once each hour and do something in slow motion. 
spend 60 seconds eating part of your meal in so in such slow motion that you take one small bite and you hold it in your mouth for 20 seconds because that's how long it takes your brain to recognize the, the nutritional value of the food. We just don't slow down. And we apply this specifically to communication. Now you're in New York. The average New Yorker speaks 250 words per minute. The average person in any other part of the country speaks about 150 words per minute. But if you drop your communication to this degree of speaking, which is about 100 to 120 words per minute, the listener's comprehension goes up. If I wire that person with an EMG device, we'll see that their muscle tension goes down. And then if I tell a person that they have to say what they mean in 10 words or less, we end up having these incredibly profound, intimate conversations and we've eliminated the stress of talking to each other. These are the kind of techniques that we've been writing about and putting into our programs. So let's take the last couple of minutes to talk about your new book coming out. Um, obviously, 13 wasn't enough. Congratulations on on uh, the fact that you can do 14 books and be mindful is, is an extraordinary accomplishment from this type A New Yorker who is actually going to take a look a little deeper into your practices. I think there's a lot of merit here. Um, what is your 14th book going to be about? Uh, it's on enlightenment and the brain. And our previous books were on basically on uh, like how God changes your brain. That was looking at all of the contemplative spiritual practices that teach you how to become self-reflective, how to slow down, how not to take your worrisome thoughts so seriously, for example. And it doesn't matter which practice you use. We found in the brain scan studies the Buddhists and the nuns looked exactly the same when we looked at the brain scans. Then we took these meditation techniques and we applied them to the art of communication. That was our last book, Words Can Change Your Brain. But there's a whole other set of practices such as in Sufi chanting, where you start rocking and repeating certain words over and over again. You start moving faster and faster, and you oftentimes do it in group. We also have brain scans of Brazilian mediums who are talking, uh, who are talking to the dead and trying to connect messages through that way. So we decided to do a series of studies on the most weird, unusual and bizarre practices going on, and we found out that what goes on in the brain is something quite the opposite. Instead of us becoming more aware, instead of our consciousness that lights up in the front of our frontal lobes becoming stronger, we actually see that a person enters a unique kind of trance state where all of your, your entire worldview and all of your belief system can suddenly collapse. And it's almost as powerful as a psychedelic drug. In that moment, many people have what we call an aha experience, an enlightenment experience. It's like if you could suspend all of your beliefs about everything and look at the world through brand new eyes, what would you see? You would see something that you've never seen before. And people literally go, aha, it's like the Euripides experience of sitting in the bucket of water and suddenly going, oh my God, I understand the entire nature of volume and displacement, or Einstein has had aha experiences when he did this little mind games. So that's what our new book is on, and we're saying that enlightenment is for everyone, that you can first go through the types of exercises that I was describing in the first part of our interview, but then if you intensify your practice, if you immerse yourself, speed up the process, speed up your breathing, you can create such amazing rapid changes in the activity in your brain that you enter altered states of consciousness for which we don't have words from. And if you do that with the intention of improving yourself, of gaining deeper wisdom, this is the way to do it. We've been uh, talking tonight with Mark Robert Waldman. He's the author of books, Born to Believe, How God Changes Your Brain, words can change your brain, why we believe what we believe, 10 mind-blowing discoveries about the human brain. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. We look forward to having you back on the show very soon. His website is markrobertwaldman.com. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, that's our show. We are relaxed. You're all muted. I feel good. Kenny's right. <laughs> as long as Kenny feels good, that's all that matters. Yes. All right, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, my goo. <laughs> You've done it again. <laughs> That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 324th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Poke me a stick. That's stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Lisa Bonchek-Adams and Mark Robert Waldman. Next week's show, a spotlight on... The Young Survival Coalition. Join us for an exclusive broadcast highlighting the great work being done over at Young Survival Coalition with Gene Rowe, the Associate Director of Survivorship Programs, Meta Sutliff, their Northeast Regional Field Manager, and Kaja Carter. Uh, spotlight on Vanessa Lavin, founder of Survival Organs. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Penny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, and myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great week. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here live next Monday at 8 o'clock. Good night, folks. Tours, so...